Luke chapter 2, read verse 8 through verse 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we've heard this passage many times before now, I'm sure. But it's the um, entry point of our salvation with the coming of our Lord into this world. And we thank you that you've given us your son. And I pray, Father, that you would use these moments that we have uh, not to fill us with just a... um, once-a-year kind of feeling. But, Lord, that you'd be pleased to give us a rock-solid faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that endures not just this year, but until the day that you call us home or until the day that Christ returns. And may we return to you uh, praise and glory for all that you've done for us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's so much to say about Christmas, so much that can be said, so much that intersects in this moment as we see the Son of God come into the world. Luke's account of the birth of Christ is an extraordinary one. It's only one of uh, two accounts in Scripture of his birth in the Gospels, the other one being in Matthew. Luke was a physician. He was also a companion of the Apostle Paul. He traveled along with Paul through his missionary journeys, and Luke also spent a good amount of time in the land of Israel. During that time, it's likely that he was investigating the things that he had been learning from Paul. In chapter 1, at the opening of Luke's Gospel, He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. 
Luke was a doctor, a companion of Paul the Apostle, and also a really good historian. He investigated the things of Christ, and what we have is an orderly account of the life of Christ, including his birth. He has a personal touch here. He likely, it's not confirmed, and it's a bit of a conjecture, but he likely had access to either people who knew Jesus' mother or to Mary herself. And so we have this touching note in verse 19 of chapter 2. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So from a historian's pen, we have the account of the birth of Christ with a tender note of a mother's eyewitness, recounting what the angels had said to the shepherds who came and visited Mary and Joseph. We want to spend our time considering particularly the appearance of that host of angels that night that Jesus was born when they appeared to the shepherds. Anytime angels show up, it's a really big deal. It's not like an angel shows up on the scene and you think, okay, this is just an ordinary day. There's something special going on, something spectacular, something important. And so the appearance of the angel who gives the announcement of the Christ's birth and then the appearance of a multitude of angels indicates that something really significant has happened. In chapter 2, verse 8, there are shepherds that are out, as you know, in the night. They're keeping watch over their flock. And then an angel of the Lord appears to them and announces this good news of great joy. Savior's been born. And if that wasn't enough for these shepherds in the middle of the night watching their sheep to see the angel, an angel of the Lord appear and the glory of the Lord shining around them, there also appears a multitude of angels in the sky. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you know when people see angels, they generally fear for their lives. They're terrified. That's why the angel says in verse 10, fear not. Still, you'd have to think they'd have a hard time obeying that command. There's an appearance of this angelic army now that happens. It says in verse 13, the sign's been given, the shepherds have heard the announcement. And then verse 13, suddenly, means just out of nowhere, the sky was, had been filled with one angel and the glory of the Lord, the light of God's majesty shining around them. And then suddenly there's the appearance of a multitude of the heavenly host this is likely an innumerable amount of angels that have appeared. Revelation chapter 5 verse 11 also describes a multitude of angels. 
When the Apostle John gets brought up to heaven to get to see in the heavenly throne room, he says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I was talking with one of my sons about this scene, and he was pondering the the vision of this and wondering if the landscape of the angels went so back as if you were standing at the edge of the sea and looking out to the horizon of the ocean and all you can see is the ocean. Was that it for the angels? Could you just see row upon row upon row of angels until the sky ends? A multitude, innumerable, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands at least are available in heaven to come down to earth There's something I need to dismantle for a moment, and if you know, this is a little bit of a soapbox of mine, but angels look nothing like precious moments angels. (laughs) They're not little dolls with cute, chubby faces. They're fearsome creatures. They're God's messengers and servants. It says in Hebrews 1.7, of angels, he says, he makes his angels winds. And his ministers a flame of fire. Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet Isaiah enters into the throne room of God and sees that vision of God and fears for his life, he saw these seraphim that were flying around. They had six wings each. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And seraphim literally means burning ones. Their bodies are probably a flame of fire. Angels are powerful creatures. In 2 Kings 19, one angel of the Lord went and struck down 185,000 of the enemies of God's people in one night. Sometimes they look like men, as they did when they appeared to to Lot in Sodom. Sometimes, as I already mentioned, you see them with wings. Sometimes you see them as having four faces, the creatures that surround the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4, 6 through 8 are described as having four faces and also having eyes full all over them in front and behind. One had the face of a lion, one had the face of an ox, one had the face of a man, one had the face of an eagle. And they surround the throne of God, never ceasing to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Some cherubim are appointed in Genesis chapter 3 with a flaming sword to guard the Garden of Eden so that man after his fall cannot re-enter that paradise of God. You're fearsome multitude of angels that appear on this night kind of in the middle of nowhere to these shepherds. We have another scene in Scripture where there's a multitude of angels. It's 1 Kings chapter twenty-two, nineteen. A prophet had a vision of the heavenlies and he saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Nehemiah 9.6 says the host of heaven worships 
you. This multitude that appears was a multitude of angels that dwell in heaven, surrounding the throne of God, composed of a multitude of angels of terrifying features to human sight. And they're a host, which is a word that we don't use except for when we're reading scripture, but it's literally armies. It's heavenly armies composed of fearsome angels. In anything that God does, it's done orderly. God is a God of order. And so likely, this is an angel army that consists of ranks of angels that are ordered according to their purpose. And they surround the throne of God, willing to do whatever He beckons them to do, whenever He beckons them to do it. And so there they dwell in heaven, doing the bidding of God, Surrounding the throne of the thrice holy God. And they appear on this night in the fields surrounding Bethlehem. What are they doing there? Why do they show up? What do multitudes of angels do when they come to earth? There's some hints that we get about what angels do when they come to earth, multitude at least. One of the biggest events that's happened in the history of the world is, and you should know the answer to this, the creation of the world. If there was no creation of the world, of course, there is no history of the world, so it's pretty important. The beginning of the Bible starts off there with God creating the world. And if you read Genesis, it's spectacular with what God does. Because at first it's just darkness and kind of chaos. And God speaks, let there be light. And light comes. And he begins to form the earth that he has designed and he erects the pillars of the earth and sets things up so that it will be an orderly world in which the people that he is going to make can dwell in it. He makes dry land. He puts the waters into a particular location. He separates the waters above from the waters beneath. And then he begins to populate the frameworks that he's created, the land and the sea and the air, with the creatures to inhabit them. He fills the sea with the living creatures there. He fills the land with the living creatures there. And he fills the skies with the birds and flying creatures. And as the Lord accomplishes this amazing task, something happens. You can turn back to Job 38. Job 38, verses 4 through 7, describe the creation of the world in God's majestic wisdom as he did so. It says in Job 38, verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. 
Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's a reference to the heavenly host, the angels. We don't know exactly when they're created. They're created beings. They haven't always existed. When God created the earth, so awesome was his work that the angels that he made sang together and they shouted for joy over what God had done. And if you got to be there, you'd probably do the same thing. You'd be so amazed. And this gives us a hint that what God's angels in heaven do is when God does an amazing work, unlike anything else that the world could ever see, they shout for joy. They declare his praise. And so with the first great act of God in the creation of the world, there are angels singing his greatness Shouting for joy. You don't really see a scene like this again until you come to the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. The creation of God is something that we marvel at or ought to marvel at every day. The sun's shining in the windows right now. That's amazing. Snow falls, the leaves change color, the grass grows, the birds are fed, birds fly, cows graze, colors exist, our airs fill with the, our lungs fill with the air that God has made. I mean, His creation deserves our praise. It's the first great act of God. It's his creation. But you know that creation's been marred by sin, don't you? That's why we don't just marvel in awe at its beauty. We also tremble in fear at the power that's out there. Storms that come, hurricanes that hit, Tornadoes, lightning, earthquakes, disease, death. All of these things exist in our world because sin has entered into it, because mankind has rebelled against the Creator. And so the world is cursed, even though it still maintains some of the beauty. So that which God created is perfect, and which deserves the praise of angels has fallen into a curse. Because of mankind's sin. And yet God promises that he will make a new heavens and a new earth. A new creation. That's really the storyline of the Bible. God makes the heavens and the earth and they're wonderful. They fall into a curse because of mankind's sin. But God promises restoration. He is going to bring about new heavens, a new earth, a new creation. When does that start? Well, there's a night in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago when there's this baby who was born. 
the one who the prophets told about, who was conceived by the Virgin Mary, who was born into such humble estate that he was laid into a manger. Nobody really knew about it at this point except for Mary and Joseph. Then the angels get announced of the birth of this child, the one who is going to bring about the redemption of all things, the one who will have all power in heaven on earth. As a matter of fact, the one who is there who made the heavens and the earth, the word through whom everything was made, has now been born in human flesh. And what do the angels do? Those who are there praising God at the first creation appear to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, now singing the praises of the God who is beginning his new creation with the sending of his son. That's why this angel army appears to the shepherds to announce the great work of God. And that's why when they open their mouths... They don't start with anything except glory to God in the highest. Because they are his servants and they are there to announce the second great work of God. The new creation. This is why the angels appear. God's up to something big again. As big as him making the heavens and the earth. But it looks so little. uh, Little enough to hold in the palms of your hands. The wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of the world. Nobody's looking in that manger. Except for Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. That angel army that must have terrified those shepherds sings in perfect harmony, glory to God in the highest. They are ascribing to the God of heaven glory. They are saying he deserves all praise and recognition for what is happening. Glory to God in the highest is simply an attribute of the location of where God is. He's in the highest place. He's in the heavens. So the God of the heavens is the one who deserves the glory for what's happening in that manger in Bethlehem. That's what they mean by glory to God in the highest. They recognize that God in heaven is doing something awesome on earth. And what he's doing on earth is bringing peace He's bringing peace. This is an odd thing in a sense because any invading army that goes into a warring enemy territory doesn't usually go saying, we bring you peace. And yet we know that the territory of earth is in rebellion against God. Every day, the people on earth shake their fist in the face of the God of heaven. And they deserve nothing but his retribution. And yet God sends 
his angel army to earth that has enough power to completely wipe out the entire human race. And yet they come bringing a message of peace to earth. That's the gracious God of heaven. The one who sends a message of peace. As soon as somebody shakes their fist in our face, we get ready to shake our fist in theirs. But the God of heaven is ready to make peace with his enemies. And the location of the peace that he is going to make with his enemies is in his son who's in that manger. We'd like to think the peace on earth that's being proclaimed there is a peace where all of a sudden everybody starts getting along. You know, there's just kind of this happy, uh, hippie kind of peace that happens where we all start wearing flowers. That's not the kind of peace that's being talked about here. We'd like it if all of a sudden all the nuclear arsenals are just buried and done away with. All of the armies are going to go away. That's what we'd like to see. And God's word actually does say that they're going to turn their spears into plowshares. And the armies of earth will be gone. But that's not the peace that's being talked about here just yet. Look at Luke chapter 12. The words of Jesus are amazing. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. This is Jesus after he's grown up about 30 years. He says, Luke chapter 12, verse 49, I came to cast fire on earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus seems to say the exact opposite of what the angel said. The reason for that is not because Jesus doesn't bring peace. It's because he doesn't bring the kind of peace that we in our humanity would desire. He comes to bring a peace that is only found in following him. That's why he divides households. Because you have some who follow Christ and some who don't. And if that happens, there is a rift that can't be repaired unless all follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So the peace that Jesus comes to bring on earth is with those with whom God is pleased to give it to. 
That's the language of Luke chapter 2, verse 14. It is referring to the gracious will of God to bestow peace on those whom he desires to give it to. And those whom he desires to give it to are those who are found in his son, Jesus Christ. There will come a day when Jesus comes back and those who don't follow him, he will punish his enemies He will disarm them completely, and there will be no more wars, no more enmity against God, and that will be over. But that's his second coming. The angels are announcing the peace that comes with his first coming. And the peace that comes with his first coming is primarily peace with God through the blood that Jesus shed at the cross. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that we have peace with God. That's the peace that comes to earth right now, is a reconciliation between heaven and earth through the Son. That's the peace. The reason that this peace exists is not because we go and set the terms of peace. It's not because we've found a way to make peace with God. It's not because we've turned good. Really has nothing to do with anything we have done. The shepherds were not expecting those angels that night. And if you were there, you wouldn't be expecting them either. This is the great invasion of heaven to earth to bring peace to mankind through Jesus of Nazareth. Heaven did it, not earth. Heaven brings peace to us. Have you accepted it, is the question now. Have you accepted the terms of peace? The terms of peace are found in Jesus Christ, the babe of Bethlehem. Come to him. Find in him God with us, the one who will reconcile you to heaven so that you can have peace in your heart, in the forgiveness of your sins, and one day you know that you will be with God forever. What should we do now? Well, I think it's appropriate that we sing glory to God in the highest. I don't know what song John is going to lead us in, but let's make it our prayer.